please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 29 and through 35 together. As you recall, in Luke chapter 7, we've been looking at people interact with Jesus and ask the question, who is Jesus? At this section of Luke chapter 7, we're dealing with the interaction between Jesus and at the beginning of this, this section that began in verse 18, the disciples of John the Baptist and, and Jesus interact, and then uh, they leave, and Jesus has discussed uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. We looked at that uh, last week. And then this morning, we're looking at the continued dialogue that Jesus has with the crowd about the ministry of John the Baptist and their reaction to what Jesus has just said about John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, so please uh, stand with me as we read verses 29 through 35 together. Verse 29 of Luke chapter 7, remember he's just said that he's just commended John the Baptist's ministry. In verse 29 he says this, uh, Luke says this, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Jesus continues, verse 31, uh, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and saying to one another, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You may be seated. <coughs> Father, we thank you this morning to come and, and worship with you. Thank you for the music we just listened to. We pray that this time would be a, a time of, of refreshment for us, that we would come to you, the, the living water, and find our, our satisfaction and our joy in you alone. As, as we, we sang earlier than that, uh, you are, are all that we need. Uh, Jesus is, is all that we need to sustain us and to give us joy. We seek our satisfaction not in the things of this world, not in relationships, other than our relationship with you first and foremost, Father. And we, we pray that as you open your word to us this morning that our hearts would be receptive to it that you give us hearts of, of belief and hearts of trust and we pray this in your son jesus's name amen this summer our family spent a week in michigan and we were staying very close to lake michigan one afternoon we we're on the beach there of lake michigan and where the kids are playing in the sand and whitney and i are kind of watching them play in the sand and i i look at my oldest daughter hannah and i say uh, hannah what do you think? You want to just see how far out in the lake we can swim? Hannah, uh, being a very adventuresome child, said, yeah, Dad, that sounds like a great idea. And so we uh, grabbed a little inflatable chair. I said, okay, you, you sit in the chair. I'll swim out. You can swim some and rest some. And so we got out in the lake, and we began to, to swim out and swim and swim and swim. She kind of rested in the chair as we got a little further out, and I swam a little bit further. And we got to the point where I thought, you know, this is – is probably far enough. This is a little bit, uh, maybe even maybe slightly past my comfort zone uh, with the distance from shore. But I'm just going to sit out here on the lake with Hannah for a few minutes, rest, and 
just enjoy being on this, this beautiful lake. So I begin to, to climb up onto the inflatable chair, and I kind of hoist myself out of the water, and the second my weight touches that inflatable chair, there's this sound, followed by a very uh, slow Hannah's big brown eyes get a little wider, and she looks at me, she goes, what was that, Daddy? <laughs> said, uh, that means Daddy needs to lose a little weight, first of all. Uh, secondly, uh, th- that, that means we're going to go back a little bit earlier than we had planned to. And so I said, why don't you do this, sweetie? Uh, you stay on that chair as long as it has air in it, and uh, I'll, I'll start swimming back, and then you're going to get a swim for a little while, longer than we had planned on you swimming. And she goes, okay, Dad. And uh, we began to swim back. Now, as we swam back, I became much more aware of our surroundings. Going out, I hadn't really paid attention to the, the waves or the, the, the shore and all those things. Now, as we began to swim back, I thought, you know, these waves are a little bigger than I, I thought they were. That shore is a little uh, more distant than I thought it was. Those people seem a lot more tiny than I thought they were originally. And as I looked back west out toward the lake, I could almost see the Chicago skyline in the distance. You know, I felt like we are way further out here than I planned on being. But because we were aware of our surroundings, we were aware that we were in a potentially dangerous environment, we took some precautions and we got back to shore fine. Everything was great. Hannah is still in counseling, but besides that, (laughs) everything is great. Now, I, I say this because you and I have been immersed in a very dangerous ocean. We've been immersed in a, an ocean, a, a sea of unbelief. You, your children, if you have children, your friends, your family, all of us are surrounded by a culture, by a world that has denied God's claim on their life. And this danger of unbelief is a very real and present danger for each person in here, for each person in here whom you love. I want to read a couple passages here that describe the danger that unbelief is in our lives. Here's Hebrews chapter 3 is one text that I think is a great example of the danger of unbelief. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7, the writer of Hebrews is quoting the psalmist and says this, uh, Today, if you hear his voice, that is if you hear God's voice, Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing the wilderness. For your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Then the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers. Be careful. Watch out. Be aware of the danger lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a real danger that our hearts could be unbelieving hearts. In a group this size, it is almost certain that there are some people who have come in to be involved in worship of God, who have participated in the things of God, and yet their hearts remain unbelieving hearts. 
And the writer of Hebrews says this, watch out, be careful, look to yourselves, and make sure that there not be within you a heart of unbelief, because the unbelieving heart becomes further hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and does not enter into God's rest. That is a very dangerous reality. There is no greater danger to you than the danger of unbelief. There is no greater danger to your children than to have an unbelieving heart. Romans chapter 2 also describes the the danger that exists because of unbelief. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking to those who are self-righteous, kind of these, these, these hypocrites, and he says this in Verse 3, uh, this is Romans chapter 2. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or, verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But, he says, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent, that is, unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a time when all of us will will need to make the decision about whether or not to repent and turn from our sins. And those who fail to repent are in danger of experiencing God's wrath. I don't want to experience God's wrath and judgment. Therefore, it is incumbent upon me to make sure that my heart is not a heart of unbelief. I don't want my children to experience God's wrath. Therefore, it is imperative for me to watch their hearts very carefully and foster hearts of belief, not hard hearts, that turn away from the living God. I love the people in this church very dearly. And I don't want there to be within this church hearts of unbelief, hearts that have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and have turned away from the living God. And yet we know from what we just read in Hebrews chapter 3, that it is very possible for a person to have deceived themselves about the condition of their heart. And if it's possible for you and I to deceive ourselves about the condition of our own heart, it's also possible for us to deceive ourselves about the condition of other people's hearts. In fact, we don't know the condition of other people's hearts, right? This morning, what I hope that we do is this. I hope first and foremost, as we look at the heart of unbelief, the heart that is exhibited by these people who have a negative reaction to John the Baptist's ministry, I hope we first and foremost look at our own heart and ask God to, to, to show us where our, our heart is in relationship to faith in him. To ask ourselves, look, do I have the characteristics of an unbelieving heart, or do I have the characteristics of a heart that has been transformed by faith in Jesus Christ? Have I come to a point in my life where I've recognized that I am on a path that leads to God's judgment, I've repented of that path, and I've turned to faith alone in Jesus Christ, turning away from my own works, my own righteousness, my own self-righteousness, and turning to faith in, in God alone 
because of my faith in Christ alone? Have I, has that happened to me? That's the question I hope you ask yourself as we, uh, first and foremost, as we go through this passage. And in fact, if you come to the conclusion as we talk this morning, hey, you know what, the, the characteristics of a heart of unbelief, these apply to me. I, I have a heart of unbelief. I have not responded to God's truth by repenting of my sins and placing my faith in Christ alone for my salvation. I would encourage you, uh, after church, to, to come up and, and, and talk with one of our elders, uh, Mark and Linda DeJarner, are going to be up here at the end of our service. And if you say, you know what, that heart of unbelief describes me. I, I want to turn from my sins and place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to come and, and talk with them. We'll have other leaders that are, that are in the church as well. Uh, any Sunday morning that you desire to talk with me, uh, I wait around until everyone's left. And so I, I know sometimes there's a lot of people talking to a lot of people. And if, if, I, but if you want to talk to me at any time, about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll be here to, to do that as well. So first and foremost, again, to ask yourself that question, do I have a heart of unbelief? And then secondly, not just yourself, but you know, what characteristics of, of a heart of unbelief do I, I see in my children and people that I love, and, and how can I lovingly pray for and encourage hearts of belief in the people whom I love as well? As we look at the three characteristics of a heart of unbelief, what we're going to see is that the heart of, of unbelief, the unbelieving heart, needs to humble itself, repent of its sins, and repent of its rejection of Christ. Well, turn with me to verse 29, and open up your Bibles if you haven't already done so. And look there at verse 29, and we'll see the first characteristic, the first characteristic of an unbelieving heart, of the heart of unbelief, is that it refuses to repent. It refuses to repent. Remember, Jesus has just described John the Baptist's ministry. He's given John the Baptist's ministry an incredible commendation. Last week, we looked at the characteristic of John the Baptist's authentic, God-exalting ministry. And now, <coughs> there are two reactions to what Jesus has just said about John the Baptist's ministry. We see the first reaction in verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. What he's describing there are a group of people who have recognized themselves as sinners. And as they recognized their own sin, the people in the crowd recognized their own sin, had already recognized their own sin, specifically the tax collectors, and they heard what Jesus was saying about John the Baptist's ministry and John the Baptist's call on others to repent of their sins, the tax collectors, the sinners in the crowd, said, yes, God is right. As God spoke about my sin, I agree with God's understanding of my sin, and I have repented. I love that phrase that is used uh, by Luke to describe their reaction it says that the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, or they justified God. That is, they, they vindicated what God said. They said what God said is right. That word just is, is used by Luke several times throughout his gospel. Uh, one time he uses it as in Luke chapter 10 as he's uh, going through the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, the, the lawyer, we're told, wants to justify himself. He wants to vindicate himself. He wants to prove that, that he's right. Well, here, as the people look at their own lives, 
and hear what Jesus is saying about John the Baptist's ministry, they agree with God about <coughs> the condition of their own heart. In our family, uh, we have this little song that we sing. Uh, I, I'm the only one in the family that really enjoys uh, this, this song, but I force other people to, to sing it as well. The song is called the You Were Right song. And uh, we, the, the occasion on which you sing the You Were Right song, uh, appropriately enough, is in situations where another person has demonstrated their superiority to yourself in some area. I'm kidding a little bit. but for, So, for example, if uh, my, the kids and I are talking about a conversation we had earlier, and uh, they, they believe that one thing was said, I believe that another was said, and it's proven that I'm right. What we do is we force the children to sing the You Are Right song. <laughs> it goes like this. <coughs> I'll just say it. You were right, and I was wrong. Now I have to sing this song. Life would be better, it's true, it's true, if only I learned to listen to you. Okay? <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful song? What is it doing? It, it's, it's, it's a heart of humility in some sense. It's saying, look, I, I was wrong, and you were, I like singing it to you. I'm just teasing a little bit. I, I like singing it to the kids, too. You were right, I was wrong. Now I have to sing the song. Life would be better, it's true, it's true. If only I learned to listen to you. The people here, this first group of people, recognize that God is just. Whenever God says that they're sinners, the tax collectors vindicate God. God, you are right. We are wrong. What you said about our lives is correct and true. And so the people turn from their sin and turn to faith in God. There's a second group here. And the second group we see in verse 30. Verse 30 describes the Pharisees and the lawyers. And the Pharisees and the lawyers have a different reaction. It says, verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So the first group are these tax collectors, the sinners, who recognize that what God said about their life was true. And they were baptized by John in this baptism of repentance. But now we have this second group, the Pharisees and the lawyers. And this second group demonstrates a hardened, unbelieving heart. Now these lawyers, you need to understand a little bit about Jewish first century Judaism, this culture here. There were kind of three phases, three stages that a person would go through in order to become a lawyer, a spiritual lawyer. The first phase was this phase of becoming a, a pupil. And what a pupil would do in, in this, in be, to become a spiritual lawyer is they would sit underneath the teaching of a, a, of a rabbi or another teacher, another lawyer. And they would not just learn the law, but they would learn all the oral tradition that went with that law. All the, all the, 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 the interpretation of the law, all the application of the law. And they would just sit under this teacher and the teaching was so specific that the pupil was expected to be able to mimic even the, the gestures that their teacher made. Okay? Very extensive training. 
And then not only do they go through that training as a pupil, but then they enter the, the second phase, the second stage of becoming a spiritual lawyer. And the lawyer would in the second stage have the ability to begin to make decisions for himself. <coughs> so he wouldn't have the ability to speak into other people's lives. But in the second phase, he has the ability to make decisions for himself about how to, how to live and how to operate. And then he comes to the third phase of being a lawyer, and this third phase is when he becomes this ordained scholar. And now, not only does he know the law and the interpretation of it, not only does he have the ability to speak into his own life, but now during this third phase, the lawyer has the ability to speak into other people's lives. So a person comes to him, say, okay, uh, this is the situation that me and my neighbor are in. Uh, How do we handle it? What do we do? The lawyer says, well, you, you do this and that. Lawyers, uh, you see throughout the Gospels, are, are people who are asking Jesus questions, right? A lawyer comes to Jesus and, and asks him a question. And what they're trying to do is kind of a, a fake sign of respect oftentimes. They're pretending to recognize him as a teacher, but actually trying to trap him in the questions that they're asking because they have this, this preconceived notion of what the answer should be. So a lawyer has gone through all this training as a pupil. He's been this, this unordained scholar for a period of time, and now he becomes this scholar. And a lawyer had really uh, reached the pinnacle of his religious life. And the idea that some guy in the wilderness wearing camel hair had the ability to tell a lawyer what to do And that a lawyer would need to turn from this path that he's followed so diligently was a ludicrous idea to many of the lawyers. Repent, turn, turn from what? I know the law, I know not just the fourth commandment, but I know all the the, the classes of work that constitute violating the fourth commandment. What a ridiculous idea that some guy in a camel suit out in the wilderness would tell me how to live my life ludicrous you see the danger right you see the danger that exists here for people in spiritual leadership and for all of us by extension a person in spiritual leadership even today has oftentimes go through gone through years of training they've gone to seminary sometimes they've they've gone through a, a social being an associate pastor in fact it's kind of funny whenever i became a senior pastor it's it very very interesting I'd been an associate pastor for, for eight years. And during that eight years, I'd been kind of in a, a conversation with someone about some issue. You know, honestly, I can't even remember what the issue was. But we disagreed about it. In fact, we disagreed ab- about it, I believe, like a week or two, even before I, I became a senior pastor. Then I became a senior pastor. We talked about it a month later. And, again, I, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but the, the person said, we talked about it again, and said, you know what, I think you're right. So what, what do you mean? Why do you think I'm right all of a sudden? He goes, well, you're, you're a senior pastor. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, there, was, there wasn't some sort of magical, uh, you know, Holy Spirit dust that gets sprinkled on a senior pastor and it suddenly makes him a smarter, well, maybe there is. No, uh, <coughs> it's just a ludicrous notion, right? <coughs> but sometimes, as we, as we grow in, as, as we see people grow in spiritual maturity, we have a wrong understanding. We believe, look, the, the more spiritually mature a person is, the less the less they need to repent, perhaps. 
When in reality, what happens as you grow in spiritual maturity, as you grow in belief, you recognize more and more your need for continual repentance. An unbelieving heart, an, a hard, unbelieving heart refuses to repent. The tax collectors are aware of their need be, for God's grace. They hear John the Baptist proclaiming this message of repentance. They have these hearts of belief. God gives them these hearts of belief, and they turn from their sin, turn to faith in the message that John the Baptist is proclaiming. The lawyer, who's been through all this religious training, has this hard, arrogant heart, and so refuses to repent. Now let me describe again what repentance is. We've talked about this when we were in Luke chapter 3, talking about John the Baptist's ministry. But repentance essentially means this. A person uh, is, becomes aware of their sin, and there's some sin there. And they look at that sin, and the sin that before they had not thought much about or had enjoyed, they now say, you know what, this activity that I was engaged in, that God calls sin, I agree, that is indeed sin. And then, not only do they acknowledge that it's sin, there's this, there's this lack of desire to participate, it in, to participate in it any longer. And in fact, now there's a desire to turn away from it. And there's a commitment to do so. Sometimes in uh, some churches, uh, there's a wrong understanding of repentance. They make repentance a work, something that you do in order to gain God's favor. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is really essentially part of that same act of placing one's faith in Jesus Christ. I've described it this way before. It's like a guy who's, for some reason, uh, standing on the edge of the boat holding a, a big rock. You should not do that. And he falls off into the lake, and as he falls into the lake, he has this a large uh, rock, and someone tosses him a life preserver. And what he does, it, in order to grab onto that life preserver, is he, he lets go of the rock. He stops continuing to sink and turns to grab a hold of the life preserver. As we place our faith in Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we're turning from this, this life of self-righteousness, of seeking to, to appease God on our own works. We're turning away from dead works and this, this path that we've been on, and we're turning and placing our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the gospel. Repentance is, is part of that act of, of faith. It goes right together with it. The people here, in Luke chapter 7, respond one of two ways. Some of the people, recognizing their sin, agree with God and they repent. The Pharisees and the lawyers, it says here, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They rejected God's purpose for themselves and continued in their sin. So they say, okay, Daniel, uh, heart of unbelief, one of the characteristics is that it refuses to repent. How do I know if, if I have that characteristic? How do I know if I'm refusing to repent? Well, I believe that you know that as you look at your reaction to sin. Uh, do you have an entrenched commitment to continue in sin? And I, I'm not saying do you continue to sin, but do you have an entrenched commitment to continue in that sin apart from what God says about it? As you're made aware of sin in your life through God's grace, do you say, you know what, I agree with God that that is sin. A and I still struggle with it. There's still a draw that it has on my life, but I, I no longer want to participate in that. I want to continue to, to seek God's grace in that area of my life. If you have a hard heart towards sin, 
You say, I, I know what God says about sin, but I, I don't really care, frankly. And I'm going to continue to engage in that activity no matter what God says. Or you say, you know what, uh, I, I even disagree with God that what he says is sin is in fact in reality sin. That's the characteristic of an unbelieving heart. That's a refusal to repent. Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus is talking about divorce. And in verse 8, they're, they're asking Jesus, like, look, if divorce is wrong, why did God allow Moses to, to write a certificate of divorce? And what does God say? What does Jesus say? Because of your what? Your hard, unbelieving hearts. A person that has a hard, unrepentant, unbelieving heart refuses to call sin, sin, and continues down a pathway of sin. Ephesians 4 kind of describes the, the same characteristic there as it talks about a hard heart. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the dark, the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This hard heart causes ignorance, and this ignorance causes a person to continue to live this unhealthy, unwise, unbiblical, unrepentant life. Uh, this past week, I was having a conversation with uh, someone from the, the local high school, and just a very good conversation about a variety of things, and just very encouraged by my time. <coughs> uh, discussing Washington community. Then as uh, the, the conversation continued to go on, we, we began to talk about the different facets of, of life at the Washington, and, and we mentioned the, the Gay and Lesbian Association there at, at Washington. I said, let me just be very frank with you. Uh, he here's my concern about this, this organization. Uh, my concern is, is this. You have taken uh, a lifestyle, a... a, a, a type of activity that one engages in that is that God says is wrong and you've come along students who are struggling in this area of their life and instead of saying hey this isn't the the optimum way to live this isn't what God would have for you you've said let's encourage you in it we don't want you to be discouraged as you follow this lifestyle I said I believe that the Christian uh, that the church should respond to uh, people who are in, in this uh, lifestyle or tempted by this lifestyle with great love and concern and desire to help. And what you've essentially done is encourage them to continue down a pathway that I believe will lead to their uh, further unhappiness and just a, a, a terrible life. Instead of giving them hope for something different, you've encouraged them to continue. You've, you're, you're, you're commending a, a lifestyle decision encouraging a lifestyle decision that will lead to their ruin. He said, and it's not just con confined to this, this one area of sin. There are many types of clubs and activities I wouldn't encourage a local high school to have. I wouldn't encourage a, a high school to have a, a, a club that encourages a, a adultery or a, a premarital uh, sexual intercourse. I wouldn't have a high school encourage students to uh, learn how to commit fraud in their workplace. There are lots of lifestyle decisions that different people are tempted by, enticed by, and the role of the church is to call people to understand what God says about the activities that they're engaged in and to turn from them. Now, what do we say to all that? We say, look, the desire to, con to refuse to call something sin that God calls sin reveals 
an unbelieving heart. And what we must do first and foremost is to look at what God says about finances, what God says about sexual morality, what God says about all areas of our life, and say, look, I have a desire to repent and turn from those things that God calls sin. A refusal to repent shows an arrogant, unbelieving heart. That's the first characteristic. Secondly, second characteristic of an unbelieving heart here, we see in verses 31 and 32. An unbelieving heart demands God dance. An unbelieving heart demands that God dance. Look at verse 31. It says, Jesus begins talking again. He says, okay, to what shall I compare the, the people of this generation? And no, any time that Jesus refers to your generation, it's, 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 it's almost always not a good thing. You don't, want God to start, you don't want Jesus to start talking and refer to you as a, a generation. Here's he uses the word generation. He's talking about the, the characteristics of a group of people at a certain point in time. And specifically, he's talking about the leaders of this generation as standing as representatives of this generation. In uh, Luke chapter 9, he talks about the generation as well. In uh, Luke chapter 9, he's, Jesus is interacting with, this, th- with his disciples and this man whose son is demon-possessed. And Jesus says in verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? This is an unbelieving and, and twisted and perverted generation, a group of people, an, an, an age. Then uh, Jesus in verse, uh, let's see, in, in chapter 11 of Luke, also talks about the characteristics of the generation. In uh, Luke 11, verse 29, Jesus says this, it says, uh, this, he says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks, that is, it demands for a sign for proof, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. He goes on in, in verse uh, 42. He's talking about woe to the, the Pharisees in, in Luke chapter 11. Then he goes down a little bit further into uh, verse 49. In verse 49, he talks about how the, the prophets were sent to them. Then verse 50 says that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. So as Jesus says here in Luke chapter 7, uh, verse 31, what shall I compare to this generation? He's talking generation there in a sense of a group of people, the characteristics of a group of people at a certain time that are twisted, unbelieving, and very demanding. They want signs. They want God to to do certain things to, to prove to them that he is who he says he is. And it's a very perverted and twisted generation that Jesus is speaking to. Then he says in verse 32, he gives what uh, some have called the the parable of the brats. Verse 32. He says, this generation is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So you have this picture of these, this, this generation, this twisted, perverted generation, specifically the leaders of the, the generation, sitting in this marketplace like little children. And these children call out to other children and say, look, we, we played the flute, you didn't dance. We sang this sad song, this funeral song, and you didn't weep. You're not playing our game. What Jesus is saying is that he and John are like the children that these other children are upset with. He and John aren't dancing the dance that they want them to dance. They want God to do the, the things that they are telling God that he should do, and he's not doing them. 
He's not revealing himself in the way that they demand that he reveal himself. This, this last week, I did something kind of interesting. I, was, I Googled this phrase. I Googled, put, around, put it in parentheses uh, or quotation marks, uh, the Jesus I know wouldn't close quotation marks. Just to see, what do people think about this Jesus that they know? And it's interesting how that phrase was finished by various groups. The Jesus that some people know uh, wouldn't condemn people for living in uh, sexually immoral lives. The Jesus some people know uh, wouldn't endorse a government engaging in war. The Jesus some people know uh, wouldn't be a, a legalist. The Jesus that some people know uh, would be a legalist. It, it's very interesting the way that people uh, know Jesus. These conceptions of Jesus that various groups of people have. Uh, Jesus, according to some people, is this this kind of like a hippie, you know, this, this peace-loving hippie. He wants everyone to, be, to just mellow out, man. Let everyone do their thing. Don't start war. The Jesus that other people know is this, this, this very legalistic Jesus that doesn't want anyone else to, to do something that, that they wouldn't do, and it's just a very harsh, condemning vision of Jesus. The Jesus that other people know is apparently very fiscally conservative and has very strong opinions on various tax issues, okay? It's kind of strange, the Jesus that some people feel like they know. But in reality, those are idolatrous conceptions of Jesus and what Jesus is saying here is, look, God sent John the Baptist and God sent me for this, these ministries, and you have certain expectations of what those ministries should look like, and when the, your expectations aren't fulfilled, you fail to believe. You become upset. An unbelieving heart demands God dance according to their song. But God's not going to do it. Jesus doesn't fit our cultural conceptions of what he should be like. My encouragement for you is to, to give up the dancing career, you know. Give up the music career. Stop playing the flute. Stop singing the dirge. There are three, several questions as we think about whether or not this characteristic applies to us. Do I demand that God dance? Uh, one question to kind of ask yourself is, look, as I think about my conception of God, does God exist for me, or do I exist for God? Does God exist for me, or do I exist for God's pleasure? I was talking with a, uh, someone in our church this, this past week who was going through some health issues, and as this person talked about the, the health issues that she's facing, she told me that she's been memorizing Psalm 115, verse 1. Psalm 115, verse 1, the, the following verses say this, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And listen to this, verse 3. We read this a couple weeks ago. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Do you believe that about God? Do you believe that God is a sovereign God that sits in the heavens and does everything that pleases him. The unbelieving heart doesn't believe that truth. The unbelieving heart believes that God exists for me. God does what I want him to do. God's goal in life is to make me happy. Whenever God doesn't do what we believe he should do, our hearts 
rejected. That's not the God I know. But as this woman was talking to me about her health issues, she acknowledged, you know, this is part of God's pleasure. God's pleased to have me go through this circumstance in life. Not because he just desires to see me suffer, but because he loves me more than anyone else in my life. And certainly uh, her husband, the leadership of the church, no one would, if we had to be able to, the ability to plan out our life, would have planned this for her. But a loving God who loves her more than any of us has planned and ordained that she would go through this. The believing heart says, I recognize that this is a God who does all that he pleases that's called me to go through this. And my goal in going through this circumstance in life is to continue to demonstrate belief and give glory to God. When I was in high school, one of the, one of the projects that I had was to go through the, the book of, of Job and, and to kind of give a, a, kind of a take on what the book and message of Job was. And as I looked at Job and I saw how God and Job interacted at the end of Job, I said, I think this is teaching us that our goal is not to, to question Job or to question God, but rather to submit to his, his sovereign hand. My teacher wrote back, she goes, that's ridiculous. You know, the goal of, of Job is to show us that we should stand face to face with God and, and, and tell him what we believe also. I said, boy, that is some creative exegesis here. Here's what uh, God says to Job in Job 38. He says, who is this that, if this is Job after he's questioned God, God says back to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When all the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And God goes through here in, in chapters 38, 39, and on, talking about his magnificent, sovereign work and his power over all creation. And Job at the end goes, <laughs> I get it, God. I get it. And God never or Job never understands in the story of Job what God's ultimate purpose what that was that brought on this suffering, but he responds to God's sovereign hand. The unbelieving heart rejects that truth. The unbelieving heart continues to demand that God dance the dance that it wants God to do. We ask, does God exist for us or do we exist for God? Is suffering a circumstance for God to fix or is suffering a tool that a sovereign hand, a sovereign God uses to cause us to bring greater glory to him? The unbelieving heart refuses to repent. The unbelieving heart demands that God dance. <clears throat> then finally, verses 33 through 35, we see that an unbelieving heart rejects God's revelation. Jesus explains what he just meant by this parable, the parable of the brats in verse 33. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, verse 33, For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and, and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. That is, you're, you're singing this, you're playing this flute, you want John to dance, you look at his austere lifestyle, God called him to a ministry in the wilderness, calling people to repentance, you say, nah, I don't buy that. He has a demon, that guy's crazy. 
Then uh, someone else comes. Jesus comes, someone far greater than John. And now, he says, verse 34, the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, no wine, uh, e- I'm sorry, uh, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is, now someone comes along, the opposite of John the Baptist in the ministry that God's called him to. He's friends with tax collectors. He engages in eating and drinking, and you reject that as well. This third characteristic we see is that this unbelieving heart rejects God's revelation. No matter what content, no matter what form it comes in, the unbelieving heart says, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. It's very similar to the second characteristic, isn't it? Very related. John the Baptist didn't dance, you denied him. Jesus didn't sing, you deny him. The unbelieving heart will not be satisfied. The unbelieving heart is like Goldilocks, you know, too hot, too cold. Isaiah in Isaiah 29 describes this this tendency of the unbelieving hard heart towards God's revelation. It says in verse 11 of Isaiah 29, The vision of all this, God's revelation, has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't, it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I can't read. The unbelieving heart will always find a reason to reject God's revelation. And our goal as individuals is to, first of all, look at our own heart. Say, God, how am I refusing to repent? How am I demanding that you dance my dance? How am I rejecting your sovereign revelation? Why don't you take a moment, just bow your heads with me, and ask God to to show you the content of your own heart. God, am I refusing to repent? Have you shown me sin in my own life that I I just refuse to call sin? Ask God to reveal sin in your heart and to give you the, the grace to respond in repentance to that sin. Ask God to, to show how you've demanded that he act, how you've demanded that he dance. Just take a moment and ask how you've refused to, to bow your life to his authority. But also ask God how you've rejected his revelation. How have you ignored his word? Father, we know, we know that we are often, we are often guilty of manifesting characteristics of unbelief. And we would pray that you would allow our hearts to continue in faith in you. And Father, if there be any of us, as we look at our hearts, we recognize, you know, we have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We've not placed our faith in him. We haven't turned from our sins. (coughs) I pray that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that we would turn from our own path of self-righteousness to a path of seeking the righteousness that's only found in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.
in a moment, uh, we're going to, as we, as we close, after we close, I'm going to come back out and just going to encourage you, encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, and Mark and Linda are going to be up here, and anyone else that, that, uh, that you see in the halls, you know, is a spiritual leader in our church, I'd encourage you, talk to them, and receive uh, God's forgiveness, place your faith in Him, turning from your sins.